Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Kanisha, and at this week's Roundtable, Jack, Jed, Madeline, and I spoke with Eli Dworkin, Editorial and Policy Director of the Center for an Urban Future, or CUF. CUF is an independent nonprofit research and policy organization focused on building a stronger and more equitable economy in New York City. It's pretty unique in being deeply place-based and focused on driving impact with research by giving policymakers specific and concrete ideas. Eli oversees the development of all publications and advances CUF's research recommendations on the critical policy challenges facing the city and state, splitting his time between doing the research and getting it out there. A journalist by trade and passion, Eli loves getting to talk to smart, interesting people and to ask them questions from fresh angles. He also loves working to ensure that what CFCUF produces is clear, concise, and accessible, and has actionable implications on important issues like helping city policymakers unlock the full potential of CUNY and creating a more equitable economy. We talked at length about the challenges of taking on big goals like this given the pull of underlying issues like systemic racism and misogyny that operate outside of public policy and economics. How can journalism be a tool in making systemic change? Eli underscored that while many things conspire to make us feel systemic change is impossible, making incremental progress, for example, on things like building better and stronger career pathways into adulthood, can still be really satisfying. Rather than just focusing on the bad and negative, he and CUF work to engage with important ideas and create tangible change, even if they can't resolve all of the deepest challenges. We agree and hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane and I'm a high school senior from New Jersey. And in addition to being on the podcast team, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And today I'm looking forward to really talking about whatever you're interested in. I know that there's a lot of things that you mentioned that you'd like to talk about. I think especially like economic mobility is huge, especially since we're starting to kind of maybe come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so seeing the other side of that, what it really means to not only support people like during these kinds of hard and economically distressing times, but also beyond that, how we can provide for people as like a government, a society in general. So looking forward to that. Hi, everyone. My name's Jack. I'm a high school junior in Manhattan. I'm really excited today to talk about sort of the ways that infrastructure and like urban planning can impact outcomes in cities. That's like kind of a niche interest of mine is especially like the way that we talk about like how transit affects people, how resources affects people, how like social services affects people. You know, what does it mean if you have a park near your house? What does that what's that going to do for your outcomes? What does it mean if you live near water? What does it mean if you live near a polluting place? I think that that is really interesting to me because it doesn't seem like something that would massively impact you. But when we look at it, I think that it actually is the case that a lot of the times it really does matter where you live. It does matter what access you have to a different service or services. And so I'm excited to like examine the way that we talk about infrastructure and think about new infrastructure, whether that be like literal, like build a new road or figurative, let's start a new program. But I'm really interested and excited to sort of explore the role of how the things we put in place actually impact people, even if they don't seem like it. 
Hi, I'm Jed Horowitz. I'm a junior from New York City. I've done work with NextGen looking at media literacy, and that extends itself to the greater idea of how our systems are upholding our democratic values and how larger systems and social groups are supporting our democracy and, and helping it thrive. So I'm excited to, to learn about what city planning and what some economic policy and restructuring can do to uphold our democracy. Hi, everyone. My name is Madeline Mays, and I'm a high school junior from Brooklyn, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a lead civic fellow at our Freedom of Expression CAPS, which we're having our presentations this Sunday after months of work and research. That's very exciting. And I'm particularly interested in tonight's podcast because I'm really, really interested in entrepreneurship and economics. At school, I'm in this program called Virtual Enterprise, in which high school students, without any supervision, work together to create a virtual business and attend presentations and competitions um, nationally. And this year, I've, I took an entrepreneurship class, and um, it's something that not many students have access to. And I would say like barely any students um, have any sort of financial literacy or business related educational opportunities, especially in public schools. And throughout this year, I found myself particularly interested in economics to the point where I was thinking of double majoring or minoring in it, um, which is bizarre since I'm such a humanities based person. So I'm really interested in tonight's conversation. Hi, my name is Tanisha, and I'm a high school junior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also a facilitator of LiveVote. And today I'm really excited to talk about, first of all, urban planning. And second of all, the way we actually communicate information about making change or issues that are just generally very complex and very hard to understand for people who don't really have access or to the time understand really dense issues like the ones we usually talk about. So firstly, obviously, we live in New York. I'm walking in it right now. And um, I'm just really interested in what urban planning looks like, both from all different angles, right? Like, I recently started learning more about things like zoning laws, how businesses get permits, building on what Madeline was saying. And I never realized how complex the process it was. So I'm just really excited to learn more about what the economic landscape in New York looks like, but from different perspectives than the macro scale that we kind of focus on. In addition to that, I was reading about like the other work you've done in the past and how you've, you know, edited a bunch of different journals and work. And I just thought that was really interesting because when we think about research like that, I don't think we really focus on, I guess, the change that it can make. Like whenever I think about academic journals or anything in that arena, I kind of think of it as just like very erudite and hard to access. Thing and, and it feels very removed from, you could say, the real world. It feels like very academic. Whenever I'm reading papers like that, I always think, but why does this matter to me? And um, I'm just excited to talk to you about clearing up that misconception and the other work that you've done and how we can actually use research like that and apply it to policy and our real world. Fantastic. Well, it's great to meet all of you. This is a, such an exciting conversation for me, in part because your introductions just really got me going. I mean, you're giving me so much to think about, um, so many different areas, questions, issues that I'm, that I'm personally passionate about. So I couldn't have asked for a you know, better introduction to all of you. Um, briefly, I'll introduce myself. I'm Eli Dvorkin. I'm the Editorial and Policy Director at the Center for an Urban Future. We are a New York City-based uh, research and policy think tank, a nonprofit 
focused on building a stronger and more equitable economy in New York City. So we're pretty unusual in that we have a focus on a single city and state. Um, there's not a lot of other think tanks that, that narrow down to one municipality the way that we do. And that we are, um, and I really appreciate where you were going with that at Kanisha, you know, we're really focused not just on producing research, but on really driving an impact with the research that we, that we do. So, you know, we don't want to just settle for producing reports, no matter how high quality or in-depth the research um, that sit on a shelf somewhere and get dusty. Our goal is always to produce research that drives impact, that helps policymakers make better decisions, that gives city officials and state leaders specific and concrete ideas to run with, workable solutions to some of these problems that we're, we're going to talk about today. So um, that's what we do. That's why I enjoy the work that we do so much. We do it in several different areas, but always with a focus on building a more equitable and inclusive economy. Um, and that's that's been Cuff's focus for going on 26 years now. I've been with Cuff for the last six, first as managing editor, and then over the past couple of years as the editorial and policy director. So really I split my time between producing the research, overseeing the research process, and driving the impact, helping to get the ideas out there and into the hands of policymakers and other folks that um, can make decisions with them. So uh, that's what I do now. Um, I have. A longer backstory, I'll maybe just share a little bit of it. I'm, I'm really a journalist by passion and by, by trade. Um, that's where I got my start. But I've always had a sort of a simultaneous thread working in startups and in more entrepreneurial ventures. So Cup feels like a good fit for me because it's a kind of a blending of those interests and then some. I worked for other news organizations and websites, started out as kind of an arts and culture reporter. I moved into a variety of other experiences helping to produce and and lead traveling art exhibitions. I worked for a while at Kickstarter, the, the then startup um, in the early days, helping to set up that site's um, creative community. And, um, and then I most recently, prior to Cup, worked as a staff editor at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a much larger think tank focused on US uh, foreign policy and international relations where I edited all of the work of CFR's uh, fellows. So, you know, a bunch of different experiences that came together um, to where, where I am today, as well as one other project that I helped to start, a, uh, a community-focused arts organization called Silent Barn, which was in Bushwick, Brooklyn for about a decade. Um, I helped to start that space and its second incarnation, a bigger, almost 10,000 square foot mixed-use venue and uh, artist residency program and studio space. That was um, right there on Bushwick Avenue for a whole bunch of years and where we produced uh, live performances and hosted artists and uh, had a bunch of different spaces that were available for community uses as well. So, you know, a bunch of different things, all of which I think have kind of come together into the work that I'm doing these days. So you mentioned that you started off as a journalist and kind of translated that passion into the work that you do now. So just working in that field where journalism is very much about obviously reporting on an issue and trying to get an in-depth look of the issue out to various audiences to actually study it. You know, point of a journalist is to inform other people. And I kind of wanted to just learn a bit more about how do you think the skills and the passions that you had as a journalist translated to those that you do now? So uh, you hit on this a little bit because it was very much a culmination of your passions. But I guess more specifically, what do you think is so enticing and so useful about your background in journalism? To the work that you do now? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, I would say, I mean, this experience is less that I'm having right now is, is less common for me, only because I do spend so much of my day asking other people questions. I think that's the main thing that I learned in journalism, and it's the skill that I use every single day. Um, you know, not just being inquisitive, um, that helps, you know, cultivating your curiosity, 
but being a good listener and, and being able to ask the kinds of questions that elicit the most revealing answers. And often, you know, that only comes from kind of building up a certain rapport, really knowing somebody's field, knowing where they're coming from, and then sometimes surprising them, you know, giving them a curveball that they may not be expecting. But that in that moment, you start to kind of go beyond maybe the talking points or things that they prepared and start to get into the substance a little bit more. So um, I always love that aspect of reporting or researching, you know, getting to talk to really smart, thoughtful, interesting people and asking them questions, ideally questions that maybe they haven't heard before, or at least that are getting at some of the things that they find interesting or important from kind of a fresh angle. So that's been a through line uh, all the way through. And, and then it's helped me in, in my role at Cuff because, you know, as you were kind of uh, alluding to earlier, you know, a lot of research that's produced, you know, academic research uh, or, or policy research, no matter how incisive or thought provoking, you know, often the end point for that research really is the inboxes of other researchers. You know, you're writing for a really, really small audience. With journalism, you're writing for everybody. You're writing for engaged citizens, you know, your, your average New Yorker. And that's what we aspire to do at the Center for an Urban Future, which I think makes our work a little different as well. You know, we're writing ideally really accessibly. We want our reports to be readable by everybody. And we want them to be interesting to folks who aren't policy wonks or experts in all of these different areas, you know. And I think that's the journalistic part of what we do, um, being able to translate wonky, complicated topics into accessible language that, uh, that everybody can, can sort of sink their teeth into. Um, we set that's a high bar. I, I hope we, we always you know, succeed in doing that because we do delve into really complicated policy issues. But to me, that's sort of the benefit of having that journalistic sensibility that if it's not clear and concise and uh, accessible, that you're not actually doing it very well. And just because you're using you know, a, a million dollar word where you know, a, a 10 cent word will do doesn't mean that you're smarter than somebody else um, or better informed. You're maybe just better able to articulating something in a complicated way, you know. So I try to fight against that with everything that I do. And uh, that journalistic background, I think, really helps. I think that thinking about research and sort of framing it as an accessible think tank is such a tremendous idea and model. Um, I'm a debater, and so I, I'm a high school debater at least, and so there's a lot of time spent rolling around with like JSTOR articles trying to figure out what the researcher actually means when they write a paragraph long sentence. And so I think that that is such an admirable goal. Um, but I think our interest, our listeners would be really interested. So, you know, we have this accessible content, but what's the content actually about? So I, you know, I've been reading and you've written some reports on CUNY and the job market post COVID and other things. You know, if you could just talk to us about one of those, what was the process like for that? You know, how did that journalistic process come into play? And then what were some of the conclusions and policy recommendations that might come out of that? Yeah, thanks, Jack. Great question. You know, I'll mention a couple of things. You know, in general, I would say what so much of our work focuses on concrete ways that policymakers can help expand access to the good jobs that are being created in New York today. Um, so we have an economy that is you know, deeply bifurcated between lower wage jobs that may be more accessible, but where there's a lack of upward economic mobility or opportunities for advancement, folks aren't earning a family sustaining wage. And then, you know, a large number and growing number of well-paying jobs, high-wage jobs, but where the barriers to entry are steep. Um, and that includes, you know, advanced uh, post-secondary credentials or additional training or social capital that comes from, you know, knowing people um, within that industry or that field or all of the above. Um, and I think, you know, understandably, I think there's almost, almost universal consensus among policymakers that we need to build a city, an economy in New York City that's more equitable than certainly the one that we had before the pandemic. The pandemic is only deepen so many of the, the inequities in New York City, in our economy, in our 
you know, health outcomes in our physical built environment in so many different ways. But where I think they think there's almost no consensus or very little consensus is around how you actually do that. And to me, it's, it's the most interesting area I think that we focus on because we want to provide really tangible ideas for uh, making a difference in people's lives by expanding access to good jobs and supporting infrastructure and programs and systems that can achieve economic mobility. So you mentioned CUNY. Well, our research and other research has been pretty clear in that CUNY is potentially the most powerful engine of economic mobility that we have as a city, you know, consistently helping folks from lower income backgrounds gain the education and skills and credentials that they need to participate in the city's economy at every level and to be able to earn more money and to access career opportunities that are exciting to them. So CUNY does that in a, in a pretty profound way and, and other studies have shown compared to other institutions around the country that CUNY is better able at achieving huge economic mobility gains than any other institution in, in the nation, which is an amazing point of pride for New York. One of the big problems I see it is that it's not easy to earn that CUNY credential if you, uh, in general, but especially the path to a degree is so long and challenging for folks that are already dealing with the burdens and challenges that come with poverty or with being from a lower income family or being the first in your family to go to college or all of the above. In addition to other you know, structural barriers and challenges like for women or, or, or folks of color entering into STEM fields in particular. So there, there's a lot of barriers there. But the research that, that comes to mind is a report that we put out, and this is one of many that we've done just about CUNY and more specifically about what city policymakers can do to unlock the full potential of CUNY as this engine of economic mobility. Um, so for that report in particular, it's called Opportunity Costs, and we published it last summer. It was all about the non-tuition financial barriers that derail so many CUNY students from the path to a degree. So you know, the problem is pretty acute when you just look at the data, you know, only about a quarter of CUNY community college students will earn a, an associate's degree in three years. Over 10 years, about half will leave without a degree. So, you know, the completion rates are really painfully low. For folks that do complete, that's where that economic mobility kicks in and you see these outcomes that are really transformative. But the problem there is really that many students don't. And they, what we looked at with this research was why? Why are students struggling so much to actually complete that credential at CUNY? And you know, the answer, as we saw, was, was not what I think a lot of folks may initially jump to, which is tuition. And there's such an important you know, debate happening across the whole country right now about um, not just making college more affordable, but about student loan debt. Uh, you know, these are huge issues, of course. At CUNY in particular, it's a little bit of a different story. Most students do get a significant portion, if not all, of their tuition covered through federal uh, Pell Grants and through the state's tuition assistance program. You know, there is, thankfully, we, are in, we live in a city with a lot of support for, for public college um, tuition, but that's not enough. That's really what our report found is that the biggest drivers of dropout and stopout are these non-tuition financial costs, um, the cost of commuting, a metro card, the cost of childcare. One in six CUNY community college students is the primary caregiver for a child. And we're talking about other costs as well, whether that's technology like internet at home or the cost of you know, computers or software. Uh, or books, um, which can be hundreds of dollars a semester. Um, you know, and other living expenses, of course, too, not just because New York's an expensive city to live in, but because, you know, about half of all CUNY students um, are working. And of those that are working, um, more than half are working more than 20 hours a week, which is the level that research shows academic performance starts to decline. Um, and that's a problem because state tuition assistance program is contingent on maintaining a certain GPA. So if you're academic performance starts to suffer because you're working two jobs or three jobs or taking care of a child or taking care of an older relative or both 
as is the case for so many CUNY students, well, suddenly your financial aid is in jeopardy and now your tuition's becoming a problem too. So all of these issues, you know, interconnect, but, um, but it was really interviewing students that gave us the greatest insight into these day-to-day -day decisions. You know, students who told us, I've had to choose, me personally, I've had to choose between hopping a turnstile and risking a $100 fine and a ticket um, and getting to class, you know, or had to choose between I've only got enough on my Metro card to get from home to work or from home to school, but not both. So what am I going to do today? Other decisions around childcare, around scheduling, having to stop out of a semester because a family member got sick and now you have to take care of them and nobody in the, in the household can afford, you know, the cost of, of you know, full-time home care. So, so many of those, you know, day-to-day -day decisions really were brought home for me by actually talking to students and, and former students and getting that perspective from myself and from the, the person who led that research. So, you know, that gave us a level of insight into what's actually going on. And then from there, we were able to kind of translate that into some specific policy recommendations. The biggest one, I think, being give every community college student a free Metro card. Right now, uh, students that are in CUNY's ASAP program do get a Metro card, and it's a really powerful program. It's working to help uh, dramatically increase graduation rates. But you know, policymakers want a kind of simple but effective idea for helping more students be able to persist and succeed in college. A free Metro card is a really powerful way to do it. Um, so that, that's one kind of you know, specific example. Um, but a lot of our research, how it starts, it starts with talking to dozens and dozens of people. And we don't just talk to, you know, policy experts. Um, frequently, they're kind of lower on the list, uh, if I'm being honest with you. You know, what we start with is talking to people that really know these issues because they're closest to the ground. So college counselors and academic advisors, you know, students themselves, faculty members, folks at community-based organizations that work with students every day, whether they're in high school preparing for college or currently in college and trying to make their way through. Um, or employers in the field to really understand their relationships to CUNY. And that's where I think we get a lot of our best insights. Wow, I really think that that research that you did with CUNY sounds phenomenal. And earlier I was thinking, because you spoke a lot about trying to create an equitable economy, and that got me thinking that that seems like such an impossible task because there's so many underlying systemic issues that forms the basis of an unethical, unequitable economy. Um, and so like you have to deal with like systemic racism and then misogyny and like so many different underlying issues that seems to be outside of just public policy and economics. And so I was curious about how journalism is used to actually make change in systemic issues that seem so much larger than just ourselves. Um, and it, because I feel like there's a misconception that journalism is just like the most it can do is just spread awareness or share perspective on an issue. And I think that the work that you're doing really shows that you can make a direct impact using this research and um, journalism in the way that you do. And so I was prepared to ask about that, but I think that um, the work that you expressed just now just is really evident of how it's possible and manageable and can actually be done to make a direct impact. And so I really think that that's really valuable what you're doing well thank you for that um i mean that's what keeps me going and that feedback really um you know helps me feel excited to you know get up in the morning and get at it you know and i'll say i mean i think part of it and, and this is kind of implied in your thought madeline but it can feel so overwhelming sometimes i mean that all of the challenges and the woes of the world i mean um, from 
global issues, you know, war and famine, and even much closer to home, whether it's something like police violence or experiencing another kind of local tragedy in your community. And, you know, all of these things really have the potential to make us feel like progress isn't possible or that it's not worth uh, trying to make a bunch of different things better if some of the big things are seem so daunting and kind of um, impossible. And I don't have an answer for that, obviously, but I do feel like making progress in a variety of different areas can still be really satisfying, even if it can't undo or address all of the greatest challenges or, you know, come to the same level of intensity as some of the great tragedies that we, you know, encounter, um, you know, in any given day. And, you know, the pandemic, I think, really brought that home for me in a new way where um, we're dealing with, for those of us who are all here in New York, we're living at the epicenter of a huge global tragedy and we're, we're feeling it and seeing it more than, you know, anywhere else in the world. Um, but at the same time, you know, we still need to be addressing all of these other issues. You know, how, what are we going to, and of course they're interconnected, but, you know, how are we going to not just address learning loss for folks in, you know, our public schools right now, but also ensure that we're building better and stronger career pathways for folks from high school into careers, you know, um, and how are we not only going to address the kind of immediate health impacts on the most vulnerable in our society, including older adults, but also how do we continue to think about ways of um, really supporting and, 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 and actually tapping into the incredible resources of older Yorkers as we think about, you know, building a stronger, more equitable city. So, you know, just focusing on the bad, the negative, the kind of the worst things that happen can really feel so, so daunting. I feel it personally, but, um, but I find it really rewarding to kind of focus on making tangible change happen, um, or at least putting good ideas out there, even if they can't resolve, you know, all of the challenges um, or, or, you know, some of the deepest challenges as we, as we go. Um, and, and part of where that gets exciting for me, and I think you're getting at this too, at the point about, you know, journalism and kind of the difference, I think, between journalism and what we do at Cuff. But, you know, ultimately, we don't just want to kind of do a, you know, he said, she said, or, you know, this person says this, and this person says that, and, and you decide, you know, I think we need to go a step beyond that to, you know, here's a, a, a curated selection of voices, you know, coupled with data and rigorous analysis, but in the service of making a case for something. Um, with some really specific ideas of, you know, well, what do we do about this? Um, and that's what I think is the difference. And I understand it. And I think journalists themselves in the field are also wrestling with, well, what is the responsibility of, of journalism, you know, helping the reader or the viewer or the listener make some of those decisions for themselves? It's not enough to necessarily just say, here's two opposing views you decide, although that can be done in a really artful way that actually is incredibly powerful. But then at the same time, there's, I think, and, and, and I've worked with journalists at Cup who felt like, getting to work on a project for us is incredibly liberating because they can take that next step toward um, implement, you know, toward recommendations and implementation. You know, okay, we've now learned enough to really know where we go with this. Um, and now we can kind of put some ideas forward. But sometimes the most valuable contributions are just making policymakers aware of innovative programs or policies from other places. You know, there's a sense out there that, hey, if we haven't tried it in New York, it's probably not worth doing. And that's totally wrong. You know, there's so much we can learn from other places as well. And that sometimes just requires framing it or contextualizing it in a way that makes it relevant for New York. So one quick example of that, you know, we've done a series over the last few months um, called the, uh, the Economic Opportunity Lab, which has been a series of uh, short profiles of innovative policies from elsewhere that we see having real potential for replication here in New York. Um, and so one of those examples was a program in Tennessee, of all places, called Tennessee Reconnect that's focused on helping the huge number, almost a million uh, Tennesseans 
who are adults um, between the ages of you know 25 and 65, working age adults with some college credits, but no degree to be able to come back to Tennessee's community colleges and complete a credential. And we thought that was a really innovative and interesting idea. And we crunched the numbers for New York City alone and found that there are almost 675,000 New Yorkers, New York City residents who have some college credits, but no degree, um, you know, nearly as many as in the whole state of Tennessee. So we put this short brief out, uh, making that case, explaining what, um, you know, Tennessee did just in brief and showing why this could be so powerful for New York. And just a couple of weeks ago, City Council Speaker Adrian Adams gave a speech and she announced that one of her policy priorities for this year is what she called CUNY Reconnect, which um, she said, you know, the Center for Urban Future produced this, this policy brief um, highlighting this innovative program in Tennessee. Well, you know, as speaker, she's now calling for New York City to do exactly that, to create a, a CUNY Reconnect program to help folks come back and complete. So that's a tangible example. It doesn't get it every dimension of the challenges. Obviously, we need to do a lot more to support students who are who are at CUNY to make sure that they can they can complete and persist, especially folks from the lowest income backgrounds. We need to do a lot more on the other end to make sure that employers are doing a whole lot more to expand access to the good jobs that they're creating. Um, and it's not enough to just say, earn a credential and, you know, and you'll get your foot in the door. But at the same time, boy, I happen to think it's a really good idea to invest in a reconnect program to help New Yorkers um, come back to CUNY and earn a credential. And, and, and the idea is tangible enough and specific enough that, um, that the council speaker was able to run with it. So that's just one example, but that kind of, um, you know, seeing that quick turnaround from flagging an idea or raising an opportunity um, to, you know, seeing a, a major announcement of funding and support for an initiative keeps me encouraged, keeps me feeling optimistic at the end of the day. Okay, so I wanted to quickly ask, so when you approached that CUNY study, you approached it in a very multidimensional way, right? You you weren't just looking at tuition. Uh, you were looking at all the other factors involved um, that we may not be taking into account in common studies. That had me thinking, how often are we looking deeper into the social and underlying issues behind seemingly simple um, facts or statistics? Um and I think those are the harder things to quantify, of course, right? The graduation rate is, is a pretty easy statistic to come up with and tuition as well. But all those other problems like a second job or taking care of someone in the family, those are really, really hard to, to quantify, but I think are actually more important because they can have a, a much bigger role um, in the outcomes of, in the outcomes of these students so like how can journalists and social workers people kind of behind these experiments and, and approaches and statistics go forward in a more inclusive way and when i say inclusive i mean looking at all factors involved and not just tuition or like the headliner for why what's happening is happening couple of thoughts there. I mean, one is I do think that there is just no substitute for listening to people. I don't think you, you can really understand an issue while kind of just writing from your desk. I think you have to get out there and talk to people. So doing that, some of your, your hunches will be confirmed and some will be undermined and that will force you to think harder and, and change your thinking. And that's, you know, healthy and it really leads to the best possible work. So that's part of it, which is just to say, I think everything that we do at Cuff is really a blend of rigorous analysis and data with research that could only be developed through qualitative means, meaning talking to people, interviewing people, and we, and we try to blend it together. Then there's one additional layer, which I think is 
narrative. It's really storytelling. It's how do you take all of these disparate pieces of information, your facts, your figures, your quotes, your data points, and weave them together into something that actually tells a story that people can understand. And, and that's where, you know, you're not going to be able to do everything in one piece. And I think, you know, sometimes the challenge is, what do you leave out? You know, my background, um, in addition to journalism in general, is really as an editor. And I, I come at, uh, at this work from the perspective of less is almost always more. Um, so how do we figure out how to make the report stronger by taking out some pieces of it that I might love or the lead author really loved it, you know, it's a fact or a finding that felt so interesting, but ultimately doesn't serve the kind of broader or deeper focus of the piece. Um, so that's a little piece of it, I guess. I think that narrative weaving aspect is often overlooked as kind of a skill or, or a necessity. I see it as just absolutely essential for mobilizing policy change because the data is powerful, the facts are essential, but if you can't tell a story, it's a lot harder for people to grasp, well, what are we actually, what's the opportunity here? What do we need to do about it? What's what's the missing piece? You know, you have to be able to kind of tell it like, you know, across a dinner table um, or sitting on a park bench, if you can convey it to somebody in that way, it really sticks with them. And it might be a data point that ultimately captures their attention or gets them thinking about it. But I'd like to leave them with something a little more, um, a little more narrative in, in, in its in its in its focus, um, so that you're left with something tangible that sticks in your head. Um, I think that's that's part of it. It gets overlooked a little bit. It's different processes. You know, I'm not a, a PhD statistician. You know, that's incredibly important work, and that's for other folks to do. But for me, I think my strength of cup, I think, is really in our ability to take all of these pieces of information, these facts and weave them into a narrative that is maybe where the whole is ideally a little more even than the sum of its parts and gives you something that you that you really remember afterwards um you know, i'll give you one other quick quick example we put out a report very recently just a few weeks ago about the opportunity and, and really the necessity of the city investing more in expanding pathways to entrepreneurship for public housing entrepreneurs folks at nycha today who um, are interested in starting a business but don't really know where to begin or who've already started a business and need some support to be able to help grow it and take it to the next level. And, um, you know, that report is full of the voices and stories of folks who are living that experience. You know, I think that's partly what made it so compelling and ultimately what got that report covered in a really wonderful and in-depth piece in the New York Times, which is also a key to the policymaking process. You know, when a report that we publish gets that kind of attention, you know, that gets a lot more interest from policymakers. It helps to drive policy change. Um, and the narrative is really was the most powerful element. It was really hearing the real stories of folks that are that are living this experience and having that come front and center. But then we had to provide some context so the policy under makers understand, well, what do we do with this? Um, and you know, that included some really important data on the relatively low share of folks uh, who are currently self-reporting business income at NYCHA. You know, it's still less than 1% today. But there's, of course, far more NYCHA residents who are engaging in entrepreneurship, but it's off the books, so they're not reporting that data to NYCHA. And so we had to figure out how to tell that story, understanding that the data is powerful, but it's not the whole story. Uh, on, you know, in terms of what folks tell NYCHA in their, you know, when they certify their, their income for their, their rent renewals, um, on the one hand, fewer than 1% of folks are reporting business income. On the other hand, that number has increased almost 500% over the past decade. So clearly, even just on the books, it's growing. But then when we just talk to people in, 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 in NYCHA communities, 
there was no question that that was an undercount. You know, so many more people everywhere you look, there's folks that are engaging in entrepreneurial ventures, but it hasn't kind of gotten onto the books or come into the daylight just yet. So that's part of having to kind of the delicate balance of work with the data that's available. But then we try to tell a story that can sometimes only be fully told by talking to people and making sure that their voices are in the mix as well. That's all for today with Next Generation Politics. I'm editor Vanessa Chen signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org podcast for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.